This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 73 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Michael Mayer, the co-founder and CEO of Bottomless. Bottomless is the first smart coffee subscription. They help you build a custom coffee subscription, ship you a simple Wi-Fi scale to store your coffee on, and then send you your next bag of coffee in perfect time, never arriving too soon or too late. In this episode, Michael shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Oregon as a triplet with dreams of becoming an inventor like his uncle, to studying engineering and economics in college, to landing a job at Nike, and experiencing challenges as a consumer with his wife around restocking their home, which led to the idea for Bottomless. He talks with us about how they applied to Y Combinator three times until finally being accepted how his anonymous Twitter account helped him build relationships with investors and raise over $6.8 million, and how he's grown the business to over $2 million in revenue. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on our new episode releases happening every Tuesday morning. Until then, we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Bottomless. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Michael Mayer. You know, my husband's last name is Mayer. I'm actually technically a mayor. I just didn't uh, change my name, but good last name. Nice to meet you. Family. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Great. Um, so where are you from originally? You know, where did you grow up? What was childhood like? Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, so sort of like native, uh, West coaster, probably from the weirdest, uh, West coast city, I guess. Um, uh, my parents, uh, they were both writers growing up, um, newspaper reporters to be, uh, more specific, um, just kind of, you know, they just had normal professional jobs as far as I could tell. Um, but, uh, you know, just grew up, grew up sort of a normal American, uh, American life. You know, I had some of the... Portland kids stereotypes <laughs> like we had chickens growing up for sure which people always find hilarious um, after watching Portlandia and um, you know I noticed we had too many chickens for our household and I would go selling them um, around the neighborhood which is sort of like portends what I ended up doing uh, with my life I guess um, selling chickens so, from an early chi- very entrepreneurial yeah, of you selling the eggs I, I remember um you know, people would ask me the price and I realized if I didn't tell them the price, they would give me more money for the eggs. And so I, <laughs> the, the eggs were unpriced. I would say whatever you want to give me. And, um, and that worked out pretty well. You're like, Oh, how cute kid. All right, fine. <laughs> $10 an egg. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. I, I didn't have too many customers, but I would, um, whenever I had extra, I would just go walking up and down the, uh, whenever the family had extra, I would watch them off and go walking up and down the, the street we lived on. So I would sell maybe a dozen a week. So it's not some sort of great enterprise or anything, but for, uh, I think I was five, year, five or six years old at the time. It was quite a lot of money. I could buy myself anything a five-year-old would want. 
Right. It's always a good margin as a kid, you know, there's like no costs. Yeah. My parents paid for the feed, but I, I actually did uh, feed them every morning, which, you know, in the winter in Portland, uh, you know, it's raining and, uh, you know, dewy and I had to cross. So probably the actual wage was fairly low, a <laughs> dollar an hour. Uh, right. So not quite that impressive in that context. So did you have any uh, siblings growing up? Uh, I actually am a triplet. What? You were a triplet? I think you're yeah. the first triplet I've ever met in my life. Most people don't know that. Um, wow. I think it's I think it's one out of a thousand births or something. So it's a little more common than uh, than than people um, people realize. But uh, yes, yes, I was I was a triplet, fraternal triplet. We were, we are all very different. Um, in fact, like if you met one of my siblings, you would not even guess. Um, wow. That, that we are related. Yeah, because you always think like, you know, twins and triplets, you're like, yeah, they all look alike. Um, (laughs) Definitely do not. So you don't have any stories. I was hoping to get some stories about how you guys like, you know, traded classrooms or girlfriends or whatever, you know, no stories, I guess, of that. No, uh, (laughs) not really. We had different friend groups, uh, you know, very different interests. So, uh, you know, the only thing the only thing I could share about it is that, um, you know, you always have company. Um, mm-hmm. when you're a kid, your age. Um, and, uh, my parents always say that it was sort of like a batch process. Um, so it was a little bit intense for them to do all three at once, but they oh God, um, yeah. sort of like, we, they were able to batch all of their, uh, all of their sort of like ch- child rearing. Um, right. and they also had to do like the zero to one thing like times three, uh, which yep. is, which is pretty funny. You know, they, they would always say, Hey, we didn't have a chance to screw up with the first kid. And now we have to do three at once. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was very efficient, I guess. Wow. I do not know how they, how they did that. I mean, I just became a mom like three months ago and it's like with one kid, I I can't even imagine having two more at the same exact time. Like you said, going from zero to one, that's pretty insane. Well, and what's it like sharing a birthday with two other people all the time, like every year, you know, it's kind of funny, huh? Really no difference between uh, birthdays and Christmas. Right. That's the best way I describe it. You know, it's still yeah. like another Christmas. Everybody gets gifts, like, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> Doesn't that happen with everybody's birthday? Everybody gets a gift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it would be almost the same thing. You know, a bunch of family friends come over. It's like, a, you know, a group party. I mean, I guess people don't always do that for Christmas, but it was a very similar sort of feel as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't know. I'm not really shedding any tears. Right. So what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were selling these chicken eggs, were you like, you know, this is what I want to do? Or what did you, what was your dream back then? It's funny. Nobody's asked me that question. I actually wanted to be an inventor. An inventor. Um, which so is really, what did you which want is to really invent? funny. Well, um, my uncle actually invented, you would never expect anybody invented this, but he actually invented the grocery store misting system. Really? You know, when like you go to the, the grocery store, yeah, and there's like the misters. He, uh, when he was a teenager, he he had a job at a grocery store, like, um, uh, like hosing down the the, veg- the fruits and vegetables. Um, they used to do it with a hose, I guess, and uh, and he thought, you know, there has to be a better way, right? And he he invented that, um, and sort of, you know, ended up having a whole career out of it. And so I was exposed to people being inventors from an early age, but. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I always thought that that was sort of not plausible. And so, you know, I would tell people that and people would laugh and then I'd say, okay, well, I guess I'll be like a doctor or something like not a doctor, like a lawyer, you know, so that, right. that's what I would tell people. But I specifically remember, especially when I was younger, a younger kid telling people I wanted to be an inventor and I had all kinds of crazy invention schemes when I was a kid um, that, you know, I would build some sort of like half, half ass, like prototype in the garage. Um, <laughs> So that was, that was funny. That's cool. Yeah. I, I know those, um, misters on the veggie, you know, shelves. I think now they even have like thunderstorm sounds. It's like, is that necessary guys? You know, <laughs> it always kind of, uh, freaks me out. Like what's happening. Is there a storm outside? Um, so you, you thought for a second, you would want to be an inventor. What were some of the first jobs that you had, you know, um, going into college or in high school? Well, you know, I started working as early as I possibly could, actually, um, as a teenager. And it's something I'm always proud of, and I always look for in people's resumes. Um, I think it's underrated. Um, But, uh, 
yeah, you know, the first job would have to be like, you know, I was a referee at like kids soccer games, you know, they would pay like 12 year olds, but it's like the, like you could actually work as a 12 year old uh, for that. Cause you were technically a volunteer. So there was some legal loophole. Uh, so I would umpire like younger. I was like a kid, a 12 year old umpiring like five-year-old baseball game. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as soon as I could get a real job, I got a job as a lifeguard, um, swim instructor, um, I went that route too. I was oh, like, nice. cause you know why I was like, what's the highest paying gig I can get from my age. Right. And I'm like 14 yeah. getting working papers. And I'm like, aha, I can get CPR certified and make like 14 bucks an hour. And all these other kids can babysit for 10. I'm doing this. Right. Uh, and I was a swim instructor as well. So how did that go? How long were you doing that? And what kind of uh, swim lessons did you do? Oh, I did. Oh man. So yeah, I did that for like four, like five summers almost. By the end, I was sort of like, you know, in three summers at senior year of high school, I was like the assistant manager of the pool. Um, and then I managed to grab like the coolest job, I thought, in the whole sort of like parks department for available for teenagers, which is something called lifeguard auditor. I don't know if you experienced that in wherever you were a lifeguard, but the city of Portland had like 500 lifeguards in many, many pools. And so they hired the, uh, a guy to like, or gal to, to go around and like audit um, all of the lifeguard performance randomly mm. to keep people on their toes. And so that was a great job for a teenager because I was essentially unsupervised and I spent the whole summer driving around in my car, just like popping into pools and scaring people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <is> here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funniest part about that actually was you had to record people, like you would record the lifeguards so you have it on tape and play it back to them and give them a rating essentially. And that was a very sketchy job because you're essentially hiding around swimming pools with a camera, which would freak out parents. So I had the cops called on me a couple of times and had to explain to them the position. And eventually I had to actually go um, to this sort of like park ranger, uh, you know, monthly meeting or something and introduce myself because like the couple times they came, they didn't believe me at first. And the parents uh, thought so you were sketchy. literally, the parents were like, there's this guy here who's recording our kids swimming. <laughs> yeah. I was just doing my job and like, right. you know, suddenly there would be like police, like converging from all angles. The creeper is like, 90 degrees. <laughs> I'm just like, Hey, I, this is what I do. And I would have to come down and take them down to the pool and the pool people would explain that they knew me. And, uh, you know, so that was, yeah, that was like my, uh, my high school job, uh, or like my college summer, uh, summer job. I also did the swim instructor from like the really little kids from like five-year-olds all the way up to like the, um, the people swimming laps. So, um, that was good, good sort of first experience with customer service actually too, dealing with, uh, dealing with the parents at the swimming pool. I'm sure you have some experience with that. Um, oh, but yeah. you, you sort of learn the high variance of people's attitudes in a, in a, in a public service, uh, customer service setting, I guess. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Especially trying to teach the kids how to swim. Um, so what happened after that? So what college did you go to? You know, what did you study? So um, I, I went to Oregon State University. Mm -hmm. just sort of just like uh, the normal sort of public university. Um, there's two public universities and two main public universities in Oregon, Oregon and Oregon State and Oregon State's the more engineering focused one. Uh, and I went and studied, uh, studied mechanical engineering um, for a few years. Uh, I actually, in general, I was a terrible student. Um, really? So, I feel like you can't be a terrible student if you're in mechanical engineering, right? It's like, okay, yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that didn't work out. And I ended up transferring to, uh, to, um, to Portland state and getting an economics degree, um, which was another interest of mine. Um, I really loved the mechanical engineering courses, but they, they got to be very sort of, uh, I don't know how to put it like esoteric, um, so, so it was sort of it got to be wearing on me because um, it wasn't like, it wasn't sort of theoretical. Uh, it was more about like, okay, cranking out these detailed problems in exactly the way you're supposed to do it. So, um, you know, I remember I, <laughs> I, I failed some course uh, that was a requirement um, because it, it had a very specific uh, like question. And I had been taking a math class that was totally unrelated. And I recognized that the question could be solved with a tactic from 
the other math class. And so I, I, uh, I, I, I totally solved this problem in a different way than you're supposed to solve it. And, and in a way that like, so I guess if you express this problem with a certain type of formula, you could solve it in one step. And that's what I did. And I got the right answer. And uh, I was basically, that was a third of the whole test. And I was given a zero because I didn't show my work supposedly. And um, I went in to the professor and explained to them. And they said, no, that, you know, I don't believe you. Uh, and <laughs> nice. that for me was kind of the nail in the coffin. I was like, well, I'm not going to take this course again. I'm just going to go, uh, I'm going to go study economics instead. So yeah, got, got my degree in economics, which, um, I'm happy I did because there were statistical programming courses in economics, uh, which sort of got me into coding to begin with. Mm. Is that, is that whole situation that happened? Is that why you switched schools? Um, Oregon State is a bit of a party school. I felt it wasn't conducive to my uh, academic success, I guess you could say. Hmm. Um, and so I, I, tra I transferred to have a bit of a, a, clear, um, a clear start. So yeah, I was, I was not a great student in my, my, my late high school and early college uh, uh, time and uh, you know, turned it around by transferring. So that was a tactic that worked. Yeah, changing the environment, that always helps. Yeah. So you graduated with a degree in economics. Um, you know, it looks like you worked at Nike. What was it like working at Nike? Uh, yeah, so um, what can I say about that? It was very instructive. It was very interesting to see a large, um, a large company and the way it worked. Um, I would say um, that I always wondered how a company could have like 30,000 employees. <laughs> that was yeah. one mystery to me as a, as like a college student. Um, and so it was interesting to actually see um, why that is the way it is. Um, and that also sort of, um, it's one of the reasons I, I left and, and started a company instead of working there is because um, the reason they have 30,000 employees is that like they need to have everybody have such a narrow scope of what they're doing in order to make the whole thing function, mm -hmm. you know, because if, if, you know, you're doing something at such a scale, you can't screw it up. You know, you need to like do it really, really well. Um, and there's so much coordination between so many departments and so many people that, you know, it needs to be very clear what your role is specifically. And so, um, you know, I, I worked there when I started, I was working in the analytics tagging team. And, and when I ended, I was working as an A-B testing, um, like JavaScript developer. And um, it's crazy. Like uh, my only job was to take the exact specs and implement them into a code for the test. I didn't even know what the results of the test were, you know, wow. like, yeah. and, and I had no say in what we actually did or even what the test looked like because there was a separate like style guide um, and it was like perfectly um, scoped. And so, um, you know, now I, I am involved with the A-B testing at Bottomless and, uh, you know, like I know what the results are. I can prioritize tickets. I can code out a ticket. Like the, the level of scope at a smaller company that you can be involved in is, you know, a hundred times wider or something like that. Um, and so I, I, I found the sort of more generalist approach of starting a company to be a lot more uh, personally gratifying than the, the really sort of narrow specialization involved in working at a big company. Yeah. And so how did you get the idea for Bottomless? What was that kind of aha moment? How did you go from Nike to building, you know, <laughs> the idea for Bottomless? Yeah. You know, people sometimes assume that, that uh, my co-founder and I are experts in, uh, in, um, in, uh, in, in hardware and, and machine learning and stuff like that. And it's definitely not the case. Um, you know, the, the e-commerce aspect of what I was working on in Nike, Nike is somewhat incidental um, to bottomless. Uh, you know, I can't take full credit for the idea. Uh, it was something that, uh, that, that my co-founder, Liana and I sort of came up with together. Um, we, it's kind of, there were a lot of threads going on at the same time that we sort of tied into bottomless, but really the way we came up with the idea was really focusing in on this very specific problem, which was getting stuff restocked in the home. And um, I had also worked in restaurants in college and I knew very well how they did the restocking in the restaurants, which is somebody walks around with the clipboard every single day and writes exactly the inventory level. Um, and then they sort of like do the linear math. Um, 
restaurant was always running out of stuff. So it was a poor system because the, um, the par levels were not set in any way other than arbitrarily, right? But uh, anyway, so I sort of had in the back of my mind, okay, well, you know, the way to do restocking properly is actually to know how much you have in a very fine level because I had seen that in restaurants. And I, so I sort of knew that um, theory. And so we were dealing with this problem of always being out of stuff at home. And there were multiple items that we wanted and not just coffee. And um, we were just thinking, okay, well, how do you actually solve it? It must just be that we don't know how much we have uh, and there's no system to figure out how much we have all the time. Um, and so that's why like these providers can't just ship it to us. Uh, we had signed up for a Soylent subscription and um, you know, we had gotten so much Soylent we canceled. Like we had so much Soylent in our tiny little, like tiny apartment, like 400 square foot apartment. We had so much Soylent we could have survived an apocalypse. And, um, <laughs> and, and so we canceled and then like way later we ran out. Um, and so we knew that subscriptions were the best way to solve it and they didn't work. Um, so sort of, you know, eventually thought about doing an inventory management system for the home where you're sort of tracking. And we thought, no, nobody wants to do that. That kind of sucks. Uh, and one day we just thought, okay, well, how do you actually find out how much people have all the time? Um, just have this epiphany that a weight, weight is like a source of, uh, a source of truth for how much people have. And if you could just record that in a regular interval, um, you could actually solve the reordering problem for people. Um, so we decided to make these little smart scale reordering subscriptions and um, worked our way backwards to coffee, uh, specifically because we had a problem with it, honestly. And um, we knew that coffee was way better if it's sent straight from the roaster than the grocery store. And so it was like a bigger like Delta, I guess, uh, you know, you could improve people's lives a lot more than just solving the reordering problem. You're also providing a higher quality product at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we, we thought, okay, well, that's something that could be like 10 times better for people. Um, so long-winded answer, but the truth is that that's really, it was really sort of a thought experiment. We sat there dwelling on this problem for many months, honestly, just talking about it over and over and over again and going through tons of terrible solutions. Um, before eventually landing on this and we thought maybe it could maybe it could work. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? And during Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that can sometimes double? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. That's G O M A. L-O-M-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one -one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. So what were some of the first steps you took to creating this kind of, you know, weight inventory management little you know, idea that you kind of came up with. What was the, okay, we have this idea. Now what would you do? Oh boy. I mean, just, just quit my job and uh, jumped in to do it. Did you really uh, just like on a whim, just quit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had been there for over a year, so I had sort of like accrued the uh, time required um, for my resume. And I thought, uh, you know, why don't I just, uh, why don't I just give this a shot? You know, I, I had, I was a self-taught like JavaScript developer. Um, and so I knew I could just figure out technical things by uh, just sort of like 
looking up examples and stuff. And so I kind of had done a little bit of research beforehand to see some examples on similar things. And I had a sense that it was possible to be done. And at the same time, uh, my co-founder, Leona, she is, uh, she is the daughter of two sort of entrepreneurs. Um, from She's from Peru and both of her parents were, um, were sort of like had multiple businesses throughout her life and like engineering related businesses and stuff. Her, her dad had done a company where he built buses from scratch, wow. which is insane. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's like a PhD engineer, so it's not that far fetched, but still uh, sort of a crazy, crazy thing to take on yourself in the physical world. So she also kind of had, it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility that somebody could just do this sort of crazy quixotic thing and make it happen right so so she really encouraged it and um you know i sort of had some youthful hubris because i had made a couple like tiny little products like chrome extensions and stuff um but what was your plan so you a- know i'm sure you had some kind of like idea as to okay i'm gonna spend the, i need to quit so that i can be full-time on this because i know if i'm full-time in one month i'll achieve x in two months i can achieve you know, why, what, what was your kind of game plan? Uh, the game plan was to build out the minimum sort of viable product, um, build out everything required to make it work at a minimum, minimal level, like just the total proof of concept. Um, and then test if the user retention was significantly better than a consumer subscription, essentially. Um, How did and you then test I- that? How did you test that? And, and what was the MVP? Uh, yeah, the MVP was, <laughs> I mean, the MVP was like um, these sort of like development boards that I could buy, like almost like students, students like hardware boards uh, soldered together with like a crazy mess of wires. Um, and then inside a 3D printed um, like plastic that like now looking back was like totally a terrible design. Uh, they would break pretty regularly. Uh, I, I actually started delivering them myself around Seattle instead of shipping them because they would break in the mail. Uh, <laughs> so all kinds of White crazy love delivery. <laughs> yeah. All kinds of crazy stuff, but honestly, so it was like this mess of this bird's nest of wires and like this big hunky plastic box. Um, and then like a server that got the data um, and a little graph where I could see the data myself. And like, a, I basically built a prototype e-commerce platform from scratch, like a back end for me to look at it, a front end for the customers to look at a shop. Um, it was like an insane amount of uh, work, especially for somebody who, you know, didn't have experience building hardware servers, um, really much of any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just really sort of quit my job and got after it. I think it took something like nine months to get uh, customers on board. Um, and which... you mean just to build the product out in the way that you would want to build it for real customers? Or tell me about actually that um, that phase of when you were sending, you were like, you know, driving around to these customers <laughs> with this like bulky, wiry nest of wires. You know, were you ever afraid that someone's going to steal your idea? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, okay, well, no, yes and no. I mean... And how many when people I, when, did you drive to? Like, how many people are we talking? Ten. So, so I can say when I quit my job, my boss, who is a very nice guy, I don't want to talk crap about him publicly. He was very great to me when I, I worked for him and uh, very encouraging of my technical development and let me do all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, we built a A/B testing platform from scratch at Nike. It was great. Um, but at the time when I quit, he sort of he 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 said, "Okay, well that sounds good." Um, why don't you join my friend's company that's doing this other thing? Uh, that's how like unpromising the idea sounded. Um, and so he's like, you know, yeah, and- yeah. Sounds cool. When you need a job, let me know. I can uh, hook you up with my other friend. Yeah. Or like, Hey, instead of doing that, why don't you do this? Oh um, my gosh. and, and uh, you know, several people suggested that uh, I should just go get another job. Um, mm. so I wasn't really that worried because I didn't think that anybody thought this would be very promising. I only became worried about people copying us once we sort of um, started getting some press releases and some funding and stuff, because then people have some sort of validation of, because it's such a crazy off the wall idea. 
Um, and over time, I've actually become a little bit less worried about copycats because we've had so many people reach out and say that they tried to do it but couldn't figure it out. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I, I sort of like have shifted my mentality from being not paranoid to very paranoid to not paranoid again. Um, but anyways, like you're asking about the driving around to 10 people. It was like uh, 16 customers that we gave that very, very original uh, prototype to. Or no, actually, eventually it was 60, but we started shipping them um, after the first, I, I believe, 16. Um, nothing really to say about it. At, at the time, we uh, were advertising as a closed beta test, and so uh, we only would allow people to put in their emails because we hadn't built an onboarding flow properly. And so then we would email them and say, hey, are you ready to sign up? And if they said yes, then I would sort of like create their account and give them a form for them to put in their credit card. They had emailed and then I said, okay, I'm gonna deliver you the scale. Uh, and I would just tell them what time I was gonna show up and sort of hand it off to them. Um, Were you giving coffee then as well as part of the, the deal or was it just the scale at the time? Uh, no, we always made people pay for the coffee. And actually in the beginning, we made people pay more uh, than we even do now. Um, because we were very worried about building something that people were only going to use because the coffee was cheaper. Mm. Um, in the beginning, we always sort of uh, saw this as a proof of concept for investors um, because it's obviously not an idea that you can totally bootstrap yourself um, to like an exit um, or even to a reasonably sized uh, size business because it's very complicated. Um, you're obviously going to need multiple engineers. Uh, you're not going to be able to just hack together some prototype and really scale. Right. So um, we always saw as proof of concept um, and just sort of like we're trying to get enough of a group of customers to prove that it worked better than a subscription. Um, um, and so that's actually an interesting part of the story is we got these 16 customers on. Um, we sort of like worked to build everything required, you know, cause we, we built it, we got them on and then we realized, oh, holy crap, we need this thing. And oh, we need this thing and we need this thing. Um, and so sort of just sort of scrambled to, to build the stuff that we needed to just do even the minimal product with them. And then after about maybe six months had passed or something, we finally had the data that these people were ordering way more coffee than they would have on a coffee subscription. Um, and I got some sort of comparison data on what that looked like. Uh, what like a normal subscription look like? What and is the data? Can you can you share what the data is? Um, I don't know if I can. I don't know. Like, I don't know if we've shared general, this publicly. I guess with um, like even just subscription and and maybe like the difference. Like you don't have to give exact numbers, but just to give us an idea. So one thing I can say is that subscriptions continually churn people. You know, they just. Um, you know, if you're down to like maybe, I think the best subscriptions might retain 30 to 40% um, of their of their revenue at like a year. And then, but then they continue to lose forever. Um, and what we've been able to do is not only beat that like 30% quite a bit, um, but we also essentially just stay flat. Uh, mm. Basically through year one, year two, year three. Um, so that's sort of like the primary value prop, at least to investors specifically, is that we found out a way to just sort of satisfy people's demand in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and the thesis is basically like subscriptions are great. People like getting things through the mail, but after the second, third, fourth, fifth time of managing the timing, people are just going to cancel because it's just not worth the hassle. And even if you do drink coffee weekly or every two weeks or right. every four weeks, um, you're going to drift off eventually. And I've run simulations that show basically like the minimal amount of time that you're going to have to manage your subscription is like three times a year or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so there's just a constant opportunity to churn. And for yeah. us, all people need to do is recharge the scale once a year. Uh, and we have to do a minimally good job of sending them coffee. Um, so maybe there's like a couple adjustments in the beginning to make sure the scale set up right to, um, sort of like maybe adjust their coffee selections, rate a few coffees. Um, but then once once we've once you're sort of used to the system and it's all going smooth, there's really no reason to churn. The timing really isn't accurate, is not accurate at all for um, subscriptions. I mean, we deal with that all the time here with my husband and I with protein powder. <laughs> like it's just like we'll get we'll have like four cans of it or containers of it. And then sometimes we just don't have any. And we're like, wait a minute, where'd it go? I thought we had a subscription. No, we canceled it because we had four, but where'd they all go? You know, it's like this constant exactly. thing of on and off, on and off with subscriptions. 
Um, so that's super interesting. And um, obviously, you know, you sent me a scale, which has been really cool and actually really easy to set up. It's like, you know, you just plug it in, you charge it, you push the little button, it turns green, and then you go through this kind of like, you know, really easy setup process um, over Wi-Fi. Um, it's so interesting. <laughs> like now it's, <laughs> now I can see the data on my phone of, you know, when I can expect to get some more coffee as I'm kind of drinking it every day, or even it's uneven. Sometimes I'll make two cups, sometimes only one. So I'm one of those, you know, like chaotic drinkers, um, of coffee. So it's cool to have something that's kind of tracking that chaos and, uh, keeping me on my feet of when to, um, I don't even have to do anything. I'm just going to get a text message, right. Of like, okay, here, you know, you need to order your coffee now. What do you want? Yep. Yeah, and it's dynamic. So we actually are looking at your patterns um, mm -hmm. and sort of dynamically figuring out, you know, essentially when should we order so the likelihood of you running out is fairly low, uh, but not too low because then we'll be ordering crazy early, right? And we're mm -hmm. constantly sort of like modeling. We actually model, this is a crazy thing that we do, but we actually look at how long it would take if we ordered from basically any of our like 70 roasters uh, to get to you. And we look yeah. at that like every day and try to decide like, okay, which, what's the best roaster to send to you. And then for this person, for that roaster, what's the timeline look like? And then, okay, do we need an order based off that? Um, and so there's a lot choose, of magic. Yeah. And how do you choose or match me to the next coffee? Because here I'm, you know, I got this really great Brazilian coffee. Um, that was really good. It's kind of chocolatey and nutty, whatever. Um, but how do you, how do I know, or how do you know what to send me next? So we allow people when they sign up to basically specify um, what types of coffee that they like. So we mm -hmm. have like a custom rotation filter. And we eventually landed on that over time contact with customers. In the beginning, we just had people sign up for one type of coffee and then they would just get that over and over. And we just found, so like the way that the ordering system works is exactly what we thought and anticipated going into doing this company. But the way that the actual coffee product works has evolved with contact with customers over the years, which is kind of another interesting thing. Um, but now what we've landed on is when you sign up, you tell us, do I like dark roast, medium roast, light roast, espresso? Um, do I want to pay like a premium price? Do I want premium coffee or sort of basic coffee? Um, you know, do I want ground coffee? Uh, and then what, how much do I drink? So we match you to like a size that's going to be appropriate. Um, and then we just sort of like build, we have like this filter for your account. And then we do a bunch of essentially math, um, every day to like figure out, okay. Um, you know, what does somebody with this profile tend to like? And then we combine that with the arrival timeline data and decide what we should order for you, right? So um, if you're in Florida, we may consider the, um, the roasters that we have in like Georgia, Arkansas, a little bit more strongly than our roasters in California. Um, and so we do like this really, we combine like a ton of different data points to figure out uh, what to send to you. Um, Nice. Yeah. So, and, and then it goes even deeper. You can sort of pick like more complicated uh, filters. So you can say, I want nutty type of coffee or fruity types with fruity tasting notes. You can pick like the roaster specifically, the origin. So we have like super advanced um, filtering system. You can build basically any type of rotation that you want. I don't think we do a great job of marketing that to be honest, but it's definitely yeah, possible. Yeah, I actually didn't even know it goes that deep. That's pretty cool. Um, so how, tell us about Y Combinator. How did that come about and when did you guys apply? Well, the interesting thing is we, uh, we applied three times. Really? And the first time we, yeah, we put a ton of effort in the first time and uh, just didn't hear anything, right? And the second time we put a decent amount of effort um, and we heard back, uh, but then just sort of rejected. We didn't, we didn't get an interview. And the mm -hmm. third time, we just like realized the day of the application deadline that it had to be done, like after it had expired, I think. And I sat down for half an hour and just banged out an application, just sort of like stream of consciousness. Um, and we got an interview. And um, of course, <laughs> I think the reason was like YC sees a lot of people that, um, you know, are just trying to, they, they do something. And I talked to a lot of people who say, Hey, we quit our jobs. We worked for four months. We applied to YC. We didn't get in. So we quit. And now we're looking for something else to do. Like that's, mm -hmm. I've heard that story a dozen times. Um, and what they've noticed correlates really well with success is people that have a very specific thing they're working on and they make progress. 
every time and they're still working at it. And so, yeah. you know, when we first applied, we had like 16 customers. And by the time we applied the third time, we had like 150. Um, and so they saw that we were still just grinding away on this um, yeah. and they saw our sort of traction. Um, and so, you know, trying to trying to impress them with a bunch of clever uh, writing is not as impressive as sticking to something and um, just sort of uh, making progress on it over the long run. Yeah. And they know you really, really are serious about building a company around this. Right. It's consistency. And they're like, oh, this person's not giving up. Hmm, maybe we should uh, really take a closer look at this. Yeah. And we really believed in in what we were doing because we saw the early data um, and we we sort of knew we believed in it way earlier than investors did. Um, with that first cohort of 16, we saw that the reorders were just coming um, and we knew that the hardware we were using was really janky. It would break and we'd have to replace it all the time. And um, and so like we knew that it worked and we really believed in it. So we really stuck with it for, for a long period of time. And um, yeah, we got into YC. We flew down to San Francisco. We did the whole program, um, and that was that was a pretty good boost to the company. It gives you a pretty good amount of credential, to be perfectly honest. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely subscribe to a lot of the YC uh, wisdom as well. Uh, I remember when I went down there, I was somewhat skeptical. Um, really? And, uh, after leaving, yeah, it's just my personality. I was like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Um, but by sure, the end, whatever. Uh, You're just the top accelerator in the U.S. It's fine. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, it, might be a scam. Well, there's a there's a sort of sort of certain aspect of the rich get richer, you know, like if you're if you only accept 2% of companies, it, it almost doesn't matter, you're going to get these great companies and you're as long as you don't do a terrible job of picking. But um, after going through the program, I became sort of convinced that they really know what they're doing um, in terms of um, their sort of mentalities that they've learned after working with a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you asked me, oh, did you guys have a plan for like month one, month two, month three, month six? And I kind of dodged it because to be perfectly honest, didn't really have a plan. The plan was I'm going to build this thing. When it's ready, I'm going to get customers and then I'm going to try to get more customers. And, um, you know, the funny thing is, is in YC, we saw these hyper-credentialed people, like really sort of like straight edge 4.0 from Stanford and, mm -hmm. and um, Harvard and MIT. Yep type of people and they in the beginning of the program all had plans for like four month plan exactly what they were going to do week one week two all the way through week 15 or whatever and um you know the partners at yc sort of um what's a what's an adjective i don't want to say beat it out of them because that sounds too negative but uh they would just ask okay how many how how much did you grow last week right they would go around the circle of our little groups and say okay how much did you grow last week and they would say, oh, well, you know, this week we're doing market research. And the customer and the, the partners would say, yeah, no market research, try to grow. What do you have to do to grow? Well, our product's not finished. Okay, finish your products. When, what's the fastest you can finish something that's valuable for customers? Okay, we can do this. We can hack this in two weeks. Okay, come back in two weeks. It's done. Okay, how are you going to get customers? Oh, well, we're going to go do this. and that. No, okay, just try to get customers like this week. How many customers can you get this week? And it was always just focusing on the problem in front of you and yeah. just trying to continually grow. Um, and so that was a very valuable thing. Um, and I saw people sort of transform, um, their way of doing things from sort of a very sort of business plan, um, sort of what I might call pseudo entrepreneurial <laughs> mindset, um, to yeah. a very sort of like hustle oriented mindset. Um, so that was pretty cool. And I saw a lot of people make a lot of progress, uh, with that mentality. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, I think a lot of founders, first-time founders, you just don't know what to do first. You know, you get, you're just like, where do I start? Oh, we'll do market research, and then we'll do this, and we'll do the pitch deck, and we'll, you know. And you're like, no, actually, you just get to work. You actually just need to get customers and revenue like ASAP. Right? So what's the quickest route to that? Um, make something, try to yeah. get people on it. If they don't want it, ask why and make something else. And then once you have people try to grow it, if you can't grow it, solve the problem. That's like that's it's just so simple. Um, right. You know, it, takes, it really just takes some hyper focus on that, on that one important thing, you know, versus all the other distractions. Like maybe we should do a podcast to start doing that. Maybe we <laughs> should do this over here. Or like, yes, it can be very distracting because there's so many things, especially as an entrepreneur that you want to do and tackle. Um, but 
yeah, especially in the super early, early days, in order to move super fit fast, you've got to have very, um, a lot of focus on the right things. Definitely. So you just raised a series A $4.5 million round. Um, in total, you've raised $6.5 million. Um, what was that like? What were some of the challenges that you faced in fundraising? Um, so the first time I tried to raise money, I completely failed. How and why? Total, total failure. So, um, you know, I alluded to it earlier that, uh, I believed in, we believed Liana and I believed in the concept way earlier than investors did. And, um, you know, so we, we sort of like, we worked like crazy and really ground. We were bootstrapping and we got these 16 customers on board and we had acquired them using like simple online ads. They weren't our friends. Um, and we saw people actually using it. Um, and so we really believed in it at that point. And so I just went out and tried to raise money. Um, and it was a complete abject, abject failure. Like no investors were even close to interested. Um, they weren't interested because... in your 16 customers? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny in retrospect. Um, <laughs> but at the time, like I really felt like we had proved something minimally. And we weren't trying to raise a lot of money. You know, we were trying to raise like a hundred grand or some tiny little pre-seed right. just to like continue um, you know, to acquire some more customers, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it just, it just was not compelling. And that was something that I really learned for other people that are interested in raising money is that you have to like, you have to prove it. Like really, it's almost like it's cliche, but like you, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Like you have to actually have something that people are, because naturally they're going to doubt you. You're just like some random person trying to ask them for money. Um, and unless you have like an incredible track record, people get blown off course because they read TechCrunch too much or whatever. And they just assume, you know, it's, oh, all these people are coming out and raising 5 million. And it's like, no, you have to look at either what they've accomplished so far or who they are. You know, if you're an early employee at a company that has gone nuts and IPO'd or, you know, you're a previous founder that has found some success, like, yeah, sure, you can start something and just get funding right off the bat. But generally, the other people have really done a lot of work to prove um, what they're doing um, to get that sort of fundraising, even today in this uh, fundraising environment. And so I actually had not internalized that. Perhaps I had read too much startup news. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought it, it was just a done deal. You know, we were doing this sort of innovative thing and it, it could obviously be the future. It was obviously generalizable. We had proven it. We had proven that we could do it ourselves. And, um, you know, I was really bullish and it, it was a complete complete abject failure at the time and um you know i remember we sort of like liana and i we sort of like went on a long walk and we talked about it and uh and um we almost shut the company down and we just said you know what no we really believe in this um we're just gonna keep going and so we actually just kept working at it and kept growing and kept getting more customers and you know eventually that proved to like an early pre-seed investors that, hey, these people are legit because we had grown it considerably from the 16 customers by the time we we raised money. Um, and so, so yeah, what I learned is you really have to prove it. Um, you have to prove it beyond what you would need to prove to yourself. Right. And um, I don't know what else. I mean, that was to get the pre-seed. Um, What's the difference between the KPIs that you need for your seed round versus a series A? What do you think is the biggest difference there in those types of investors? What are they looking for in those two different rounds? The pre-seed, a lot of it is really just betting on you, even though you have numbers. Um, but, uh, you know, the resume is what you've done. And so 16 customers could just be fake, basically. You know, it wasn't, but <laughs> that's what's going through their minds. But in the beginning, you really have to just show that you can do something impressive and that what you're working on is good in theory um, to get like a pre-seed round. To get a Series A, you have to actually show real, um, real traction, real numbers. You're going to have to dump all of your uh, data and send it to investors, and they're going to actually do their own independent analysis. Um, they, they need to see like a critical mass. And again, this may not be true. You know, there's, there's multiple things that they're weighing at the same time, like who you are. Um, you know, I had no track record. So, you know, for me, I really had to prove, um, prove to a very considerable degree what we were doing in order to raise it. Um, and what were some of the questions that you would ask investors to see if they were the right fit for you? Or how did you go about, you know, vetting investors? 
you know, to a certain extent, investors really self-selected themselves for us. You know, I, I would have investor meetings where people would be like, oh, you know, where do you go to school and what's your background is their first question. And I would tell them and then they would immediately lose interest. Um, <laughs> like, and oh, so, did you say Stanford? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> Portland State. I've never heard of Portland State. Um, and so there wasn't really too much, to be perfectly honest, in that I needed to do to screen out investors because the people who were the type of people that I wouldn't want to work with. Uh, generally screen themselves out very early on. And the people that would sort of give you the benefit of the doubt, talk through things with you and sort of really independently analyze whether you are a determined person and a, you know, a independent thinker, whatever is necessary, um, they sort of selected themselves in. Um, and, and so it, there wasn't a lot of screening. I would say like, I've, like most of our investors have come through sort of like, um, I mean, another part of the fundraising story is that I had an anonymous Twitter account uh, that became very popular within Silicon Valley. Um, and so a lot of the very pre-seed investors were people that I approached through that account or like introductions through that account. Like, what do you mean? You were like pretending to be someone else because it's an anonymous Twitter account. I wish you could tell us what it is, but <laughs> I can't, I can't tell, I can't say the, the account, um, although people, some people know at this point, but, uh, you know, if you're involved in sort of like Silicon Valley Twitter, um, you'll see that, you know, maybe a third of the accounts are not directly tied to anyone's public identity. Um, and so I sort of had started doing that for years and, and not really purposefully, but just as a way to get out um, thoughts that I had, I, I found it very almost productive because I felt like I had done something. Um, with, what, what kind with of thoughts, thoughts were you sharing? I would, I like, what was ruminate. the purpose? What was the purpose of this anonymous Twitter? There was no purpose. There was no purpose. It was we just, just wanted to have a voice. Life, life philosophies, uh, business, tech, just like you name it. But I just happened to be interested in in uh, in tech and startups, obviously. And so uh, the the sort of audience that I built and the network, the the friends that I ended up making on the on the app, um, ended up sort of. Um, aligning with with what i was trying to do um and so that that's sort of you know i make it sound so like what did, what did you, you say know? were you like hey so uh i actually have a startup company and i know you know my name is actually such and such and you know like how did you approach these people you had built this kind of like virtual relationship with online on twitter <laughs> and then bring them into like oh actually i'm a real person and i have this company do you want to invest yeah well i mean what people don't appreciate is that you know, if you are regularly posting and people are regular users of, a, of an app, you are like, you are like as important as like, uh, you know, CNN or like, you know, it, it, I don't know, Elon Musk or whatever, like not quite Elon Musk because he's very famous, but like, you know, you as a source of information, you as an entity to these very specific group of people is somebody with a lot of credibility. Um, if they see things that they think are insightful over and over and over again, um, they they really, really know you and they really know your thought How process. big is your following on Twitter? You're like a Twitter influencer. How big did the following get? Oh man, uh, let's just say between 10 and 100,000. I think that's a wide enough range. <laughs> that's really, yeah, thanks. That's really wide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it was it was not very hard to just say. What I did honestly was I found people and I said, "Hey, I'm going to be going to San Francisco. Can I meet you?" And it was just mm. friends that weren't necessarily investors. And I, I told them what I was doing, and um, you know, they uh, they would introduce me to people. And so I went three three times, I think, where I would go and meet a bunch of people, and then I would say, "Okay, I'm going to." you know, I'll, I'll be back in like three weeks. And then I would handle all sort of like the follow-up intros and follow-up meetings and stuff and line them up for another trip and then go uh, again later. And then how by many, the third time it was done. How many people converted to being, did you find investors that way through yeah. being, so how, what was the conversion rate on investors? I feel like people are going to start anonymous Twitter accounts right now and like <laughs> try to like create a following and get into the Silicon Valley and then like try to fundraise this way. It's well, what really I can say, what I can say is I didn't do it on purpose. Right. Um, so I, I, I very much was doing it authentically as just a creative outlet. Um, and I think that if I would have done it on purpose, I, I now have like a real name Twitter account. Um, and it only has like 
I mean, I want to say only, but there's like, I have like 3000 followers and uh, like, I try to make it like an interesting Silicon Valley person Twitter account and mostly just fail at it. Uh, so there's something interesting about doing it as an authentic sort of creative pursuit rather than with any sort of uh, aims. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't recommend, I mean, I do recommend doing it actually. You just have to make sure you're tweeting about things that you legitimately think are interesting and right. trying to build like authentic relationships with people. Because I would say uh, the people that I originally connected with online when I had like a hundred, a thousand followers were not the same as the people who eventually invested. So I, it's not like I was going to like the best known investors and trying to make friends with them because they that happens all the time for these people. Tell us about <laughs> one of the most challenging moments you've had in building the business and how did you overcome it? Well, definitely that first attempt to fundraise that was a total failure. I think um, that was extremely hard because I had tr I had put a lot of work into the business and still had my partner. We we had really poured a lot into it and we were bootstrapping it and it took a very long time to actually build out the first version. As you can imagine, I mean, it's a fairly complicated thing um, and, and we just didn't believe you could do it with anything less than like a full prototype of everything. And... Um, yeah, it was that was really just uh, heart wrenching. Almost just gave up because it just seemed like uh, the ROI was very low. You know, I, I had gotten a job as a software developer, and I could have gotten another job and really build my career. And that was a much more sort of like obvious, obviously lucrative thing uh, mm -hmm. at the time to be doing with my time. And uh, you know, also, you know, it's not very status enhancing uh, to be bootstrapping a company with no funding for over a year at the time, uh, yeah. you know, people generally just see you as an unemployed person, <laughs> don't really believe what you're doing. Right. Uh, so it was, that was, I would have to say that was definitely the hardest um, moment. Um, and we just stuck with our guns. We just stuck with our guns. We just kept working at it because we just believed in it based off the results. Um, and, it, you know, honestly, eventually tapped into my network because um, before I had stubbornly refused to do that, because uh, I wanted to remain anonymous. So sort of like, you know, uh, giving up on some of your ideals, I guess, mm -hmm. <laughs> selling yourself out a little bit. So I was reading an article, I think it was from GeekWire or something like that. And it said that you guys are a husband and wife team. What's it like, you know, working with your spouse and how do you guys find balance? Um, we don't, we don't find balance. Um, I, I would say, <laughs> um, you know, we really just are all in on what we're doing. And to be perfectly honest, it's a great advantage. Um, doing startups is a lot harder than people think, um, unless you do something where you just strike gold and it just explodes, which is the case for some successes. Um, but for many others, um, it really is a grind. And in particular, with the type of company that we're doing, that's really sort of building something novel from scratch um, and having to do a lot of new things. Um, it just requires a lot of focus. Um, we have to, we have to think like three times, we have to be three times smarter and also work three times harder. And I think, um, you know, having your co-founder also be your spouse is a massive advantage um, because, you know, we don't have to, what, what can I say? You know, in a typical work environment, like you have to squeeze out all of your, like your brainstorming before like Friday at, 7 p.m. or whenever you might end. Um, but for us, like, we really have a lot of time to sort of brainstorm and to sort of think through what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we both are very passionate about what we're doing. So there's really no conflict um, about not talking about the company during yeah. certain times. It's, it's very much a passion um, for both of us. So it's honestly, I, I it's great. I, I would recommend it. I would recommend it to anyone if they are actually sincerely interested in doing something wholeheartedly, which is not the case for certain certain types of occupations, uh, but for entrepreneurship, uh, it, it's great. Yeah, and so what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a founder or CEO? <sighs> or even just being a leader, leading a team? You know, What are some of the things that you've learned? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of threads to pull on in terms of leading a team or leading a company, one thing that we've discovered is the value of processes. And so, you know, we're almost reinventing the wheel. 
Um, but uh, when you're a young startup and you start hiring people to help you, uh, it's not very natural to put processes in place. Right. Right. Um, and so for our operating rhythm of the company, we have a very specific process that's essentially a checklist um, where we just go through a checklist every day to make sure all of the core essential functions have been done and sort of flag any problems with those core essential problems or core essential functions. Right. Um, and, and so that is actually an incredibly useful thing. Um, and likewise for hiring, we used to just sort of like put out a wreck and just sort of chaotically uh, run through the, the people and eventually say, okay, we like this person and hire them. Um, to be perfectly honest, we made a lot of hiring mistakes um, in the beginning of the company after we had initially raised money and were trying to build out our initial team. And um, you know, now we seem to be doing a much better job at that, and it's because we have a very specific process and a series of filters that we run people through um, that we think about deeply beforehand, and then we just execute it. What does so, your hiring process kind of look like? Because, uh, you know, what is your framework for that? Because I do agree. I think a lot of early stage companies, they just put up a, a job post and meet with a bunch of people and, hey, you sound great. Like, let's go. <laughs> so <laughs> what's your process? I mean, the, 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 um, the, the hidden secret about a lot of startups is they're kind of a shit show. <laughs> right. And that's that's one way to create a shit show is to, is to do that. Um, what can I say about our process? I mean, we have a series of filter sort of like screeners. Um, and uh, and it, it's different for every role. Um, and we sort of tune the screener based off results. So, uh, you know, if we think, oh, so this person was a great hire, we might look back and see what they did on certain screener things. Um, and, you know, they're more automatic for us in the beginning and they become more and more manual to the point where it's actually an interview in the end. Um, but we have, we have like a system of actually rating um, interviews as well. Um, so, yeah, I would just say a series, you know, if you have like a hundred applicants, maybe you find a screener that's going to cut out half of them and then half of them and then half of them, and you can do three of those. And you just have to consider what that screener looks like at every step um, to sort of most efficiently and um, with high fidelity um, screen people out. Um, no, or I guess screen people in is a more positive way. Of right. <laughs> and with, with ratings, what's your, what are you rating people on? Like what are, how does that work? Well, what you want to do is you want to avoid rating people on whether you like them. I mean, you, you do want to, you do want to like the people that you're working with ultimately, but if you're doing a screener, um, if you're doing a screener and you're trying to screen quite a few people and qualify people, um, the easiest thing is just to rate people on whether you sort of like personally enjoy them. Um, and I don't think that's the best way to find people to hire. And so you want to have like a system, like a rubric where you're trying to rate them on specific um, job related, uh, job related skills or like another thing that I do is I'll have a standard set of questions that I'll ask people in an interview, um, that I will sort of like, I have asked like 50 engineers, the same question. And so now I know very well, like what is a competent answer and what is not, um, and what is sort of like a mind blowing answer, um, and what it looks like when people are sort of BSing. Um, and so it helped, it, that's another sort of systematic approach is just, you have, you know, you have two or three questions that you ask every time. And outside of that, you can have sort of a free flowing conversation, but make sure you get to those. Um, and you rate people specifically on their answers to those questions, instead of just rating them at the end, which is always just going to be a proxy for whether you like them, whether you sort of are honest with yourself or not, that's just what it's going to be. Yeah. And, you know, before we wrap up here, um, what is next for bottomless? What do you guys kind of, what's the big grand vision? You know, the way I describe how we came up with the idea originally um, sort of can, um, can sort of predict the answer that I'm going to give now. Right. Um, which is we came up with this very independently of uh, coffee subscription specifically. Um, we really conceived of this originally as a solution to the restocking problem broadly. We see ourselves really starting with coffee subscriptions and then finding ways to service our customers and other types of products. Um, and there are several. 
Um, and, and so right now, our sort of North Star is eventually to build out a e-commerce marketplace of sort of like direct to consumer type products that you want to get shipped straight from the producer. Um, obviously, that's sort of far off from coffee. And uh, right now, we're just trying to make the best coffee subscription in the world. Um, but you can imagine, you know, there's many other types of subscriptions that we can move into. And then more broadly in the like far future, I feel like our, our real goal is to figure out how to automatically replenish everything intelligently using sort of like sensors rather than um, rather than people having to do it manually, um, try to store this information in their head. It's just, you know, the way that restocking is done broadly is broken and it's broken in, um, you know, commercial settings, it's broken in households, it's even broken in some industrial settings. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, whether you can perfectly count in some uh, external way that doesn't involve like sensors or of some sort, which um, is generally not the case. So um, we really have a crazy broad vision for what we want to do in the long run. Um, and, you know, that's, a, that's another challenge with the business, honestly, since you asked, is, uh, you know, staying focused on on making the best coffee subscription and um, you know putting one foot in front of us at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I guess along those lines, what are the what's some final advice you have um, for you know aspiring entrepreneurs tuning in or business operators? What would you say to them? Quit your job right now. Uh, well, <laughs> go do um, it. Hmm. You know, you have to be honest with yourself. One of the experiences of uh, doing YC was just seeing that, uh, you know, it's not for everyone. Um, and uh, so it really depends on, you know, do you like operating in extreme uncertainty and trying to deliver on something that you have absolutely no experience? Um, and, uh, you know, also having the right partner to do it with. Sometimes people um, succeed as a solo entrepreneur, but I certainly wouldn't have. Um, you know, I'm kind of the sort of like, um, head in the clouds, uh, I guess, like back to what I wanted to be when, when I grow up inventor type. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, my co-founder is a very focused, um, sort of results oriented businesswoman, I would say. And so, you know, but if you have the right team and you are interested in this lifestyle, which is also insane, you know, basically all I do is bottomless. I eat, breathe, and sleep bottomless. Then sure. Quit your job. Um, if, if you, if you want to go down that path, I would say, I very much enjoy it. I, I, I love my life uh, like this. And um, I find it immensely gratifying to, to work very hard on something that I think is ultimately going to be very impactful um, for the world. It may sound crazy, but I, I legitimately think we're going to inspire a whole new type of technology. Uh, you know, whether it's us making it or not, people are going to eventually get so used to getting things restocked automatically like this that um, it'll just be natural to apply it. And everything um but anyway uh my <laughs> my advice cool. would yeah my advice would be to uh, uh to go for it if, if you want it um you know don't expect it to be uh status enhancing in the short run mm -hmm. uh you know you have to you have to be prepared for uh, a long slog through the wilderness before um people um, actually want to like interview you or whatever um yeah but um but yeah well, thank it. you so much, Michael, for sharing your vision and, you know, advice you have around entrepreneurship. It was really fun hearing your story. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.